0: You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the November 8th, 2023 Gov Future Forum Silicon Valley at Stanford University. The panel discussed collaboration between national defense and industry and how to support communities of innovators within and outside traditional defense and government circles. On the panel were Lieutenant Caitlin DeValk, U.S. Coast Guard, Joshua Zeich, Defense Innovation Unit, DIU, Pavan Gill, National Security Innovation Network, Ensign, and David Hoyt, Gordian Knot Center at Stanford University. Stay tuned.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Kathleen Walsh, I'm an executive director here at Gov Future, And normally I always get to moderate these panels and I'm always so fortunate and honored every time I get to because like we always have such wonderful people. So I'll start off and we'll start with you David by introducing yourself, uh, share a minute or so about your background but then one fun fact. Hi everyone, I am David Hoyt. I am Stanford University's Gordon Knott Center for National Security Innovation. I've got a very non-traditional story. I was actually a high school dropout at 15 Worked as a teenager for five years. Uh, yeah, worked as a teenager for about five years before getting a GD, doing community college in New Jersey, very lucky dollars to receive a here at Stanford University. I studied <laughs> national security, um, with a focus in US China, and then went to the private sector for general control as a consulting firm. Was lucky enough to get pulled back to the Stanford for a GDMA where I in emerging technology regular policy and innovation studies, then upon graduation had a chance to work with my undergrad visa advisor, Joe pelter and we might help build the boarding office that are here. Uh, As far as the fun fact we need I follow California, my Stockholm Syndrome, for pizza, and went took- to go to the Bayville, <laughs> uh, I'm at the school
2: Where in Jersey? Uh, ooh.
1: Central <laughs> Jersey, between Princeton and Trenton. I'll make sure to drop that sack of tea for the sake
2: of
1: this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Are you from Jersey?
2: North Jersey. Uh, oh, okay. me too. Oh, Jersey yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Represent East <Peace laughs> Coast. All right. <laughs> Josh, you next.
2: Uh, Josh was like originally from South Dakota. Um, I always knew I wanted to serve the country somehow, um, but well, from a small amount, obviously, of South Dakota. <laughs> um you know checked out the neighborhood academy and i was just freaked out by the number of people and pleads that i saw um so they kind of pushed me up to over the coast guard academy i guess they you know as they say the rest is history but um
0: you know it's been a pleasure uh serving the
2: coast guard and uh oh my fun fact I've been to all 50 states but more importantly my nickname is <laughs> <laughs> Great. We'll have to figure that one out.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Uh, I am currently in 2003, thousand three, twenty-eight. I'm a new Um, I just moved here in February, so brand new in as well. Um, I've lived in Washington D.C. the past four years. Graduated college in twenty nineteen. Um, did a tour at Coast Guard Cyber Command, working with U.S. Cyber as well as just uh working with like Coast Guard entities, like their cybersecurity problems and. Working in the office of cyber went to grad school at University of Maryland Colorado Park and Then recently we got here. Um, uh, my uh, my first job was kind of the software, directory. Right? First um, uh, but, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hey everybody, Bob I'm the regional director for Ensign uh, uh, for, uh, for Northern California Nevada for instance. I've been uh, a year and a half or so I've been in the federal government for about almost 18 years. Uh, prior to this, um, I touched into entrepreneurship a little I've been a lot of fun uh, being paid to break income. Um, I've, I've worked in a high tech firm and my first job was in mm-hmm. um, So, fun uh, fact, I was born in India, and I did not become a US citizen until. Mind, but I got sworn in with Sarah before that, and the day I got sworn in, I told everybody, hey, guess what, I'm an American citizen. And everyone's like, you're supposed to be an American citizen before you became a deputy. I was mean, like, no one are right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a fun fact, for sure. All right, uh, Lieutenant DeBauw, we'll start with you. So we had the opportunity to already hear a little bit about what the CPT does. But what are some of the most significant cybersecurity threats that you're seeing? And how is the CPT helping to address it? Yeah. Uh, so for the CPT specifically, um, I also like what we see um, because we do all work on doing we not work on the government systems, as little said, we are primarily with uh, maritime transportation security regulated facilities or things that have a maritime access, so whether that's a bridge, like he was talking about, or directly port or a waterway. Um, I would say that the biggest part that I cross cutting um in this, but I'll say that looking at this versus my previous job, which was working on Coast Guard infrastructure and doing assessments on Coast Guard infrastructure, um, a lot of these companies and that just don't have a I have an idea really of what cybersecurity is. A lot of them are very, very small. They have like that one-man IT shop that is everything IT, cybersecurity, XYZ, like pretty much that SID job. Or they just don't have the budget. And it's not that maybe they don't know that they need to do this. They truly just don't have the money to get into it. Um, and so it's been a really rewarding and cool thing to come to a lot of these places, whether that's me being on mission or whether that's one of our other leads going on mission, and be you able know, to like, help them give them something that they can take back to them get the grant or the money and like, help increase their territory posture. Or like the technical you said, we literally fixed one of the uh, ticketing terminals of the server. Like, we fixed it for them. Like, yeah, we have, like, two weeks ago. And said, well, no, you it's a very general system. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I believe cool. it's scary. I very scary Yeah. You know, and <laughs> When I think about you saying there's these one man shops, so how many people are you bringing in and are you overwhelming them? Um, I think it's kind of <laughs> back to that, cultural, to that cultural question of um, us just repeatedly referring to them that like we are not here to regulate them, we are not here to find them or to punish them, we are truly there to help. Um, and I think that that is something that just comes with like having that like human aspect that I think the Coast Guard does a really good job, which is because we are primarily humanitarian mission focused. Um, but yeah, I know sometimes we do literally outnumber like the total number of like people at the company, right? The department that we're working with. It's like the recent that there was like five people and we sent like nine.
0: So, uh, <laughs> <They are cool. laughs> yeah.
1: um, primarily, we'll say the are mission elements. Um, they are nine people, but we usually don't send more than five or six um, with an assessed mission. But the hunt mission is going to be a larger complement, usually the whole mission element, maybe with the mission. Perfect. Josh, the next question is for you. So, one thing that we really like about Future, right, is bringing together industry, government, so that we can have this collaboration because not everybody always gets to talk to government, even where we are in DC. So in your role as a Coast Guard liaison, you serve as a key linkage between DIU and Coast Guard. So can you share with us some examples that you've seen with collaboration between Coast Guard and industry that leverage DIU processes?
2: Yeah, so one of the uh, Coast Guard projects that we have ongoing through DIU right now is wireless crew. Um And so you think about all the Coast Guard search and rescue boats or maritime law enforcement boats that are out on the water, um, all the headsets that the crews were wearing were wired headsets. Well, pretty much nobody anymore is using wired headsets, but there were some reasons for that. That's totally understandable. So, DIU worked with commercial industry to say, "Hey, how do we develop uh, you know wireless headsets that are uh, security encryption compliant for the missions that we're conducting, and do it in a you know, value-oriented way uh, because the Coast Guard is very, you know, cognizant of our limited resources and, you know, this isn't probably the highest uh, priority mission or not high, highest priority capability gap the Coast Guard has. So we went out to, to industry to use the uh, DIU's commercial solutions opening process to identify best-in-breed, you know, commercial solutions and then are, you know, working through, uh, the Coast Guard, or excuse me, the DIU process to deliver that wireless crew, you know, solution to the Coast Guard crews or small boat crews that are out there, you know, working in the surf and saving people, um, conducting the uh, drug interdiction boardings, and you know, whether it's the Caribbean or the Pacific or or whatever mission that they're doing, uh, but now. In the very near future they'll be able to do that with wireless noise cancelling headphones uh, that will enable their uh, mission success as opposed to you know as they move around the boat um, doing whatever the mission is uh you know kind of (laughs) trying to you know tend the the wire that's you know dragging behind them and you know tripping them up and uh, especially when you consider the environment that they're working in Um, not having the the plugs in the bulkhead of the A small boat is also a you know from a maintenance standpoint, it's a potential game changer. I'm not going to say that you know having a wireless headset is going to you know drastically improve things, but it's those incremental improvements, and as long as we can continue moving forward and making things better for the crew out there while they're doing the mission, then that's what we're yeah. So follow up questions of
1: that. Are you working, you know, are some of these people have been former military and now they're kind of creating products that fill a need? Or is it really just kind of getting that collaborative feedback saying, hey, these are some of the issues. And then companies that maybe have never done work with military or, you know, had anybody that's been in military going and solving it.
2: So, again, one of the focuses for DIU is expanding that national security innovation base. So we did not specifically target any company. Uh, when this area of interest you know, got you know, posted to the internet and kind of the solicitation became available for commercial industry. Um, but it's also helpful for those uh, commercial partners that we work with to have some idea of what the mission entails. Um, so I guess I would say we didn't target any specific company because it's a competitive selection process. Uh, but at the same time, if they understand what the mission entails, they normally can target the uh, you know the solution that they provide a little bit better, uh, but in this instance, uh, the vendor that was chosen is a larger company, but it's not a you know the number one uh, name in wireless communications uh, or even maybe the top ten. I don't know, if you want, but so it's kind of a mid-market uh, company we ended up choosing as the best in breed. Uh, for this
1: part of the community. Based. Oh, good to hear. The have a chance, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, but the next question is for you. And you talked a little bit about this in your presentation, but it would be nice to be able to drill down a little bit more. So, at Nissen, you you know, how do you proactively foster and support the development of new communities of innovation? And maybe specifically outside of those traditional areas that people think about when working with the government? I know that you said now you have some pumps, you guys are in 27 states, but how are you really getting in? Having uh, in mean, the uh, of you know, really uh, our colleagues that are nationwide uh, really getting into spaces, whether it's maker studios, right, um, or um, I mean, I'll go to conferences like B-Sides, right, so RSA is the big cyber security conference, but B-Sides happened worldwide, actually, and they're kind of underrepresented opportunities to really end with the people, really like learn what's going on in that cyber and hacking kind of space, So it's really, uh, some of it is personal passion and finding opportunities in my own personal passion to engage these communities, clubs, organizations. Um, There's a lot of organic opportunity. Just even when you put your your, uh, signature block up on LinkedIn, it's like, whoa, I didn't know that these communities existed or people are out there. And again, the topics that the DOD engage in, needs and services that they uh, have requirements for is everything and everything, right? from cyberspace to underwater, to space, so uh, it, it really is fascinating. My colleagues approach it differently in different areas of expertise you know, in their various locations nationwide. Um, we're also getting in by you know, folks who I would never professionally talk to venture capital instance, right? They're they're saying, "Hey, we're really curious about what's out there. What are you seeing?" and and vice versa, we're trying to say, well, what is it that you're trying to invest in? What is your thesis, right? And then that also sort of drives us little to say, oh yeah, okay, so there's a there's an organization out there that really cares about this given topic and whatever organic uh, opportunity that exists to be in a meeting, and i like, oh, we I think the other power of having a, being a government agency is the ability to communicate. So uh, by saying, hey, you know, USG, here we are, let's do something, so one of the things we've kind of organically done here in the Bay Area is friends of national security innovation meetup, right? So we'll meet up all right at Moffitt Field, you know, there's a bar there called the Space Bar, if you didn't know, they've <laughs> got yeah. uh local gears, um, but you know, just everything else too. But uh, it's a lot of the things where it's an opportunity to to kind of like connect people, right? So professors and students with venture,
0: with early stage startups, with military partners on being able to, like feel comfortable around each other, birds
1: other people game will chat and again, I think by you know virtue sure being a W agency you know, we're here to just facilitate and help collaboration I so hope that's uh part of the ways that we're able to touch um moving on traditional groups and I know that this is your region but uh this is a pretty strong Hoppet for investment right and venture capital not other places like Wichita Kansas maybe Honolulu are so are those groups also talking with venture capital firms and how are they, uh, you know, maybe in some of those regions that don't have that broad, how are they doing to be that practice and engagement? Yeah, so that's actually really insightful because uh, you're right, not every region has the kind of economic superpower that we have here. Yeah, today. I think sometimes Silicon Valley, right, it's just been great. You take it for granted. And when you go outside, you see that it, it doesn't work like that. So, to that point, because of the distributed nature of Edson, what we do is, I don't have as large a military presence in my area responsibility the way that like, someone maybe in San Diego might, or over in Florida, or the region, and so what ends up happening is we all collaborate and say, hey, you're out there on the West Coast, you know, a bunch of people with a lot of money. Hey, we've got people over here in Wichita, Kansas, or whatever, and that's really your idea, but they're looking for investment. Are there any, is there any interest, right? so... Uh, it's not just about maximizing the value for my AOR, my own, say, but, it's, but it's a distributed network for nation Right. David, the next question is for you. So what role do you see public-private partnerships playing in advancing cyber and defense technologies in particular? And maybe can you provide some examples? Because we always like examples. So can you provide some examples of successful collaborations or initiatives that you've seen? No, I think this is a great question. Um, So as the academic nerd here on the panel, I would say is that public-private partnerships have been imperative for America's success since the very beginning. If you go go and think back to the history, we've got everything from the River Bridge to the canal system to the railroads, to the interstate highway, to the World War II buildup, the internet, the atomic energy Like This is actually how our country has always worked. So my opinion is like, we should keep doing this. If we stop, we should get back to the basics, and this is really is essential. And when you think about, uh, I think it was a great slide that showed up earlier, which showed the delta between how much is invested in R and D uh, by the business the commercial sector versus the government sector. In part because the you know percentage of federal GDP spent on base R and D has declined than else since the end of the Cold War. The commercial sector is really driving. This order. So if you were to go to the Office of Secretary of Defense Research engineering and Engineering look for critical capabilities, the vast majority of these are being driven by a current sector. You think about artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, you're frankly not thinking about the Department of Defense. You're thinking about CLAI or Google, you're thinking about Google, Iowa Works and other advances upon So without the partnership, the government is not going to have access to cutting-edge technology. So I think the real question is, how do you knit those teams together so that each player can do what they do best? So coming out of Stanford, I think some of the great examples I think we had uh, earlier was called Phase. We think about the revolution in digital geo in um, from low cost launch driven by companies like SpaceX that you know received immense amounts of support from the government, but as a commercial entity, they drove down the cost of launch. Now as a result, more companies can go out there. You can kind of disaggregate that ecosystem. And as a result, we'll have the ability to buy as a consumer data from companies like Planet or Maxar, It totally changes the game in that sector and I have to think about that in cyber same thing, you know, take all these companies that have spread out. The surface uh, area of attack cyber has keeps expanding as the system you go to rely on keep expanding. So the companies that can sell value proposition to that vertical are really important. But also when you think about citizen mission of defending critical infrastructure. Most sectoral infrastructure is in the hands of private entities, not always in the hands of government. I mean, we had a co-star earlier about how they had to work with forces and maritime transportation highways and how uh, police that help protect that. I think this is a great example of the fact that much of what needs to be protected from cyber realm um, or cyber domain uh, requires public private partnerships, you can see. All right, wonderful. So the next question is for everybody. So Ron had mentioned earlier, our day job, we <laughs> cover artificial intelligence and machine learning. So the topic of ethics and responsible, trustworthy AI comes up a lot. So I'm going to bring that to this cyber lens and this defense lens. David may get a little philosophical, when I'm going to see his response. But so from, we can talk about a practical level, maybe a legal level, what you're seeing. How do you navigate ethical challenges? That you've seen with the development and deployment of defense and cyber tech, you know, cyber tech. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I couldn't
1: had that here. <laughs> 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 <Yeah. Okay. laughs> but, uh,
2: no, how? I see the end Well, so I'm in the autonomy portfolio at DIU, and you know what does autonomy mean and how do we decide to employ it um, in the best interest of the national you know security and obviously that does have you know some interesting ethical you know implications um you know whether there's a human in the loop or you know what things can be done autonomously um, you know as far as the projects that i've you know personally been involved in and you know, how that's kind of been navigated. It's always been human, or at least the projects that i you know, work you on. It hasn't been, uh, you know, a robot, you know, making the decision or an algorithm or an AI, you know, something non-organic or inorganic, I guess. You know, making that final decision to pull the trigger, or, you know, release the, uh, or whatever be, so I guess internally, I'm not that familiar with what the cutting edge AI is. But I would say at the present time, I think the you know having that human in the loop is our best chance to continue putting it up until that edge. And I know some adversaries may decide to you know go over that edge, um, but you know I think we as Americans have to be that, you know, withhold that standard of not, you know, going over that, that that line. Maybe
1: that's just where I've seen and where I've sat in the process as it relates to, you know, that produce of data. So I'm not like an AI engineer, I guess, or I do the sciences. That I did not focus on that part of computer science. But um, I would say, like, general, you know, for, like, the next component for cybersecurity, the big thing that gets talked about in the community is kind of, like, the whole talk about releasing offensive capability tools to the public um, that could possibly be harmed. There's a very large discussion that exists around um, Yes, you're releasing it for people to be able to then use it for their own good to know, but also like releasing it to the public, bad people can also use the to capabilities too. So that's kind of uh an ongoing discussion. I think there are a lot of like different lines that can be drawn with that. But um I'd say for, like the first of the machine learning, AI, and that uh, insecurity. Um, this is like my personal opinion.
0: I do not think
1: you're at the point yet where not having a human in the loop is possible. I think there are too many false positives, false negatives, again, that exist and occur, and it just... Every environment is different, and there's a no whole tool that I've seen that putting in every single different environment does enough that I would feel comfortable, like, not having someone sitting there watching what's coming in and still performing that, like, human check, and that... just, yeah, that, that reality check for that. Um, as far as like the ethical concerns with that, uh, that you need to through, like inherent. Uh, you're using something that is being trained on data that is either created by someone, which apparently has bias and ethical like, considerations in that, or um, it's being trained on not real data, in which case it's again not real data, so that includes more biases that can come into play. So I don't really think there's an answer yet for cybersecurity. In terms of like either AI or ML is the answer for a lot of our stuff, I think mean, it can help with like, you know, the bare minimum for some of these smaller industries and smaller companies. But I will never be a believer in any industry tools that say that they're comfortable to solve all of your problems with their next AI and ML, fancy, fancy. While not specific to AI or, or cyber, um, in the realm of ethics the way I can say this uh, the engagement that I have with folks here in the Bay area we're so lucky to have a diverse community of people and so when I come in and say oh you're the DOD pad uh you know you're all about you know legality. And I said oh, well no that is definitely an aspect of what we do but there's a whole lot more we do uh, and I started asking questions like well what are you passionate about uh, could be we like well you know carbon capture or alternative energies those large of vehicles that States. What do you do? And oh, we need help with that, right? We need help. And that's a that's a global good, right? If we can work towards those kind of things and energy that tends to that as well. So we started to talk about the uh, aspects of oh, where is mRNA uh you know pioneer is uh, just a example? We start to see that there's social good that's coming out of, it, out of the department of defense. So there's opportunity for people to work on projects that are passionate um, and still so, need their you know ethical you know compass if you will and so i think it's a it's a great place to, to consider so. uh will you just kind of pull the cane out and pull the off stage or i go too long at this point uh, so <laughs> first saying this earlier um i agree with everyone here largely i don't speak for Stanford University uh, so let will start with his very uncontroversial answer, which is, ethics are important. And a <laughs> part of all of this fashion. You cannot cleave ethics into a separate category. say so This is the room where our ethicists sit, sit, and they think about how to make this play moral. In the different <laughs> room is where our designers sit, they make the product. We can't have that. These have to be conversations that are happening together. And this is, oh, yes, <laughs> um, that's a good way put it. That should not be the norm because, unfortunately, too long in the norm, my graduation speaker when I was in grad school was uh Tim Cook, and he said, hey, you were responsible for the products you put out in the world. I think that really sums it up really well. Now, I think the hardest part of this question is that there isn't an answer to this. Uh, this has been a topic that humans have wrestled with since the dawn of their history, right? Uh question, ethics and war. Uh you know, you can go back and you can read the Greeks, the Romans, Thomas Pines, all the way to present, like, but it isn't an answer here. But there's questions about what will you do ethically in your culture, peacetime, competition, or conflict. You know, you can think about what you might do with competing with our adversary right now. Or you can think back to World War II, where the UO campaign that the Americans waged against the Japanese was much more brutal. Sorry, the submarine campaign we waged was much more brutal than the German U campaign. We were ruthless what we did against the Russian Marine fleet the Japanese. What might we do in competition versus peace time? Now, if we dig into a couple of last thoughts on AI, sorry. Now, ai I think there's a really interesting question here. Of what do you do? when You can't explain it. You delegate. Now, first, we already delegate things people we don't control. We give random land score, which is now common to GPS and I have a to say, go forth. This was the thing I put on a PowerPoint slide a week ago, make good decisions. You kind of lost control and you delegate decision making. And sometimes that land will
0: Doesn't make great
1: decisions. And and it's not explainable why he or she did did. it. You talk to Brad Boyd, who's our expert at this on the campus, he'll stand up and shake. Uh, He will tell you that these are things we do already. These are things that we have legal systems in place and how to regulate. And then the question is actually, what things can you or can you not delegate? You watch You know, people don't watch those. He will never delegate that. Other things when you say, hey, predictive maintenance, we can delegate that
2: tomorrow. what use case and what time have you delegated? Now, I think cyber is distinct. It's pulled a lot of civilian issues. Its domain is also
1: a mode of doing other things. It begins to with the public private partnership. Um, and I think that means it's different against complications and AI. Uh, I have other thoughts that it. There's Mike and- uh, Okay. All right, so I have a lot more questions. Do you want to have a comment Before I just <laughs> go on all night. Does anybody have any questions before I keep going? Can I make a comment just for about one minute? Okay. Um, to one I'm gonna minute. time you. This is from the last conference uh with uh Lee and uh, this, uh this the they said that everything got really mucky about 2017-2018 at the AI. Because he started having the Google ethics questions. What are we really building here? It, it started getting into the nitty gritty. And then we're, we're still in that, with kind of what they all agreed. And it's also obviously not clear how to get these answers, and it's it out of an answers. Okay. But also, what is a weapon or, or armor? And this gets into your time, like in peacetime versus non peacetime. And so it, you're always fighting this duality of these types of tools. And yet, that's what's driving us in civilization. So uh, that's kind of a uh, snap at the last question. There's a lot of AI stuff happening right now. <laughs> uh, yes, there is, which this is, is why course. we talk about this all day, right? So I'm like, you're going to bring that question to for cybersecurity. And let this is on. the first conference today. Wow, this is uh, course. Like virtually, I'm not at school. Um, I'm a uh, quantum uh, computer college. Oh, okay. How to do, do, do AI. There are no experts. We are all becoming. So a lot of the <laughs> point I, I you forgot earlier on the cyber side, side here. Side <laughs> So the defense the blue team, I think that's much more clear. But if you think about what actions are offense, cyber, have to take, especially in the cyber competition, frequently that means finding the zero-day exploit. Frequently, the zero-day exploit comes from an American company that sells broad. How might you find that zero-day exploit? I at the summer, Microsoft Digital Times Lab, this is a complicated action. how do you support American interest, an American company, and you're operating, and you choose by most of the planet, and provide most of the, of the anchors in your own government. So they can, this is the part where the cyber becomes extremely difficult ethically, and the due between public-private partnerships and where not every really hacker gains value in specific action, uh having the that is very challenging.
2: No, I, I guess I would just say at the end of the day, we always say it's the journey that's most important and we're having the discussion because it is important. And as long as we haven't gotten to the answer, which I don't think we're ever going to get to the answer, I think it's a valid discussion. And like David was saying, ethics are important and having these you know very thought provoking, difficult conversations at times is important. So as long as we continue investing in these, I think we're at least moving in the right direction. We may feel like veer off at some points, um, but we've got to continue having the discussions.
1: Yeah, the questions are So this is about hiring and retaining talent. And I'm gonna open this up to everybody. So David, you can you can answer this too if you'd like. Because earlier we had talked about and we talk about it a lot too, right? Because you know, we're coming from a different coast, things are different, and so you have the you know Silicon Valley perspective, the perspective here, but in the East Coast, and in particular in the DC region, there are a lot of people that do work for the government, federal government in particular. So it's not uncommon to have neighbors that work there and you know growing up, that's just something that you see. But move outside of that region and that's not something that you see. And that's not something maybe people realize uh you know could be a potential career opportunity, especially when they're thinking about head. Right. You know, there can be some Chinese salaries that are thrown at them on one post or maybe up in New York. So how are you retracting and retaining talent?
2: Well, I'm not really a hiring manager, but I will say um, similar to what Havana mentioned earlier was it's really the opportunity to be something bigger than yourself and give back to the nation. And I mean that's why I originally joined the Coast Guard 20, 22 years ago. Um, was I wanted to be you know give back to the nation and be part of something bigger than myself. And I think there hopefully is that innate desire um, you know among everybody in the human race to be part of something bigger than yourself and give back. And so it's selling that to you know whoever the the potential applicant is is you know, kind of that special sauce. Um, But then I guess I would say from the DIU specific perspective, we do lie in this very unique intersection of government, commercial, um, and, you know, it's a very cool space to be at. And like Gohan also said earlier, any problem you can think of the government has. And, you know, more specifically for DIU, the Department of Defense or DHS has. So, Like anything you want to do, there is an opportunity to attack. Um, So I guess that's how I would try to communicate it. Because yeah, on a specific or uh, you know financial basis, yeah, we're probably not going to be the most competitive compensation package. Um, But anything totality of you know the experience, that's hopefully where you can you
1: know convince them. Well, I'm also not an hiring manager, or am I believed or poor Um I will agree with that. Like obviously, um especially when it comes to the field of cybersecurity, uh my I have friends that work in the regular industry have left the government to go work in the private industry. Um uh, we will never compete with that in terms of the money aspect, it will never be about money. Um I went to the Coast Guard Academy, had been, no idea that I wanted to do cyber security, uh, just wanted to be in the military. I uh, wanted to, to do that. Uh,
0: cyber security,
1: like, literally became a thing when I was a junior in the academy, and now I was going to go and serve my um, first core in cyber security. Um, I would say, specifically for the CPT and for, like, Coast Guard, cyber in general, um, the biggest thing that we can offer is, like, the mission set that we need to do. Um, I don't know anyone else that can go and say that they got to go do an assessment on one of our newest national security cutters and go and look at all of the systems. Like just, you know, and there's I don't know how many people that can say they got to do that, you know, or they, they got to go assess the Port of Oakland or uh, you know, any other place that has like uh, the said, globally so whether that's Marina Islands or you know, Samoa or Side all these places that needed to go and send people. And that's really what, it, what it's really about. And like I said earlier, really just being able to help these smaller entities that don't have that support, that can't pay the hundreds of thousands of dollars to have these tools or these assessments done for them. Um, just like the gratitude and like the relationships that you make, um, the people that you need to serve with, like, I think that is what has uh, kept me in thus far in my like, four or five years, and will keep me in for this another five now. But um, yeah, and, and like for like yeah, for cybersecurity specifically, we do have a rating now for this workforce. Uh, and as the chamber we'll said, we now have like an officer specialty, where, like you can stay in cybersecurity and you can do that as a career. So the coast Guard are making progress in that field, but um, it's purely like a financial perspective, like that we're not doing that. Yeah, I'm speaking on behalf of myself. Uh, <laughs> and nobody else other than me. Um, I, I mean, I joke I'm near the top of my uh, federal uh, federal uh, pay scale, and I think uh starting intern at Google makes uh, more than me in the current delivery. So I, know, um, it's it's all it's all subjective, right? Uh, I think uh lot of personal journey uh, from what you know kind of uh, things happen. Um, uh, you know, in your life for me, it was becoming a citizen, wanting to serve, and, uh, came back in some way, I think also September 11th was also a major palace for me, so whether it's something that could in life, or, um, opportunity that presents itself, uh, you know, people pursue it. The challenge in the Bay Area that I've discovered is that the, I believe the average citizen in the Bay Area only sees the military once a year, and that's usually a Fleet week, and even then it's localized to San Francisco.
0: And even then,
1: you'll read the local headlines and say, oh, these darn angels are out there with those, or, you know, uh um, or the view that, you know, the folks have to go and enjoy, you know, what military the countries um, showcasing. So I, uh, a challenge that I posed to the California military leadership at a conference last year was uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is there's great stuff happening behind the fence line. So how do we take our, you know, professionals in, in behind the fence line and put them into the community? Such that they are able to play video games or shoot basketball sort of Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it might be, uh to get people to realize that we're fellow Americans, there's some really cool stuff we're doing. Um, you might want to take a look. And you know, you mentioned David earlier about uh generation D wanting impact and, and observing that through our internship program, I do see that, that that's something that's tangible, impactful, and uh, and rewarding. So um, I would like to hear salaries a little bit, but I think the, I think the presence and especially in the Bay Area is is definitely a, um, not as much as what we see in other military towns like in San Diego or just, or in America. I think we need to be more present. So, from the student perspective or working in academia, I would say validate a lot of what everyone said. First, I would say, is this region, Silicon Valley, and Stanford in particular, largely built by the DOD. So I'd highly recommend Steve Blank's YouTube lectures on our with the secret history of Silicon Valley it will blow your mind. The people who live in the Bay Area tend to forget, DOD really built this school in this region. Second thing i say is, yeah, my never gonna match with the AI engineers committee, don't even bother. Um, but the students really, really wanna serve, to have sense of mission, They want impact. They're willing to forego salary. Um, They want to, one, work on your problem set, which is the hardest problem set and most interesting problem set in the world. You want to have impact, uh, which is great. Um, You've got to catch them early. So the first thing is more internships, more entry jobs, more chance to mingle with you while they're in college. If you don't catch them early in their pipeline, they're going to keep deferring the choice to come back. The next thing I would say is that service looks like many different things. It may mean founding a uniform. It may be coming as a civilian. It may be building the tech the warfighter needs or working in a nonprofit or volunteering somewhere. But well, we want to encourage a broader array of service so that they help their country in the broader national security and national defense of this nation. The last thing i was going to say is that service changes. It um, pertains your life. So you want to make it easier to come in and serve for a shorter periods of time. You may want that software industry for a few years. You may also want to kick them back to the valley so they get new skill sets to come back. But I would say uh, the con, when I'm thinking too deep, is it's really actually quite hard to serve someone who's trying repeatedly to help the DOD. who's easier to build a center at Stanford University than to get through the front door and having them. The university's report means it's made to do a good job. We're looking to figure out how to navigate hiring. I think lowering those parent entries will be an amazingly way to more talent out here, helping solve your wicked challenges because the talent is willing. All right. Well, that was, it, I think, a really great way to end this
0: channel. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the Gov Future podcast and catch you at the next episode.